Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now. I'm Raghu Marcus. And today we're going to do a special podcast. As you all know, I usually pick a talk from Ramdas's archives and kind of frame it out for everybody and put my own little two cents in. But today I'm going to introduce to you a new podcaster that's going to be part of our MindPod network. Her name is Mirabai Bush, and for her first guest, she wanted to have on Danny Goldman. And Danny and Mirabai and I were with Ram Dass in back in the day, as they say, with Ninkaroli Baba and uh, Maharaji. And uh, I just thought it was an opportune time to uh, just do a slight change up here. I think you're going to really enjoy this uh, interview with Danny that Mirabai and I did. And uh, Danny is, of course, most well known for uh, a book he wrote called Emotional Intelligence. And he has a new book out, and I'm going to, you'll hear all about it uh, in this interview. And Mirabai Bush is uh, somebody who is, has been uh, running an incredible um, organization, Contemplative Mind, and just teaching uh, practices, contemplative practices, all around the world, all around the country. And so she has is, is going to bring to the table some really interesting people. And uh, so we, we're thanking Ram Dass here for uh, letting uh, us appropriate his podcast hour, so to speak. Uh, and, of course, Ram Dass, these are uh, some of Ram Dass's closest friends, these two guys. So uh, enjoy this podcast, and next week we'll, of course, get back to uh, uh, some of the archival talks that we cut up and present to you. But uh, here we go with Mirabai Bush and Daniel Goldman. Hi, everybody. I want to welcome two very special people. And uh, we go way back, and we were just talking about how far back we do go. <laughs> and uh, um, my first uh, introduction is to Mirabai Bush. And, and Mirabai, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but Mirabai is joining MindPod Network and is going to be one of our family of podcasters. Our family is, uh, we, we refer to them as, uh, because one of our listeners said this, I talk about this all the time, one of our listeners said, what about all this low-hanging fruit? You're always talking to people that you've known for decades, you know, why don't you get Deepak Chopra or something? And, <laughs> and our response is, I think we have some pretty good low-hanging fruit. So Mirabai, you're going to be part of our low-hanging fruit family, and also, I want to welcome Dan Goldman, Daniel Goldman, Danny, and uh, uh, Danny's going to talk to us today and uh, about this incredible and amazing new book that he did in collaboration with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, for his 80th birthday. Is that's right? That's that's it, and um, and it's called A Force for Good. So we're going to talk about that as well. 
and I'm I'm going to be a little bit of a, a fly on the wall. I'm sure I'm going to have something to two cents to throw in here at one time or another. Uh, but uh, just to tell everybody uh, how we do, we came back from India, so we were. This uh, everybody, as everybody knows, we're using Ramdas's podcast slot here. Ramdas has graciously um, given his slot. Of course, he has no idea of what what's going on right now, but <laughs> but I know he would graciously uh, allow us to have his uh, channel here for for one week. Um, and uh, we were together in India, Mirabai and Danny and I and many others that you all know about. Krishna Das being one of them. And we left India at the same time and came back to America, and in this case, Canada, because we ended up at this famous farm of my father, Dasarat, who passed a couple of years ago, and we were we made like we were still in India, right? That's true. Yeah, we, we, we wore the clothes. We cleared out all of my father's furniture. He flipped out when he came back, actually. Well, the guns oh, off I the walls, God. too. Yeah, <laughs> took them off. And, oh, and we built a, an Indian toilet. Remember that? Oh, yes. Of course we weren't going to be using <laughs> seated toilets. <laughs> Completely unkosher. And, uh, and we just had this fantastic summer. And during that summer, it was very auspicious, during that summer, both Mirabai and Danny's children were born in my father's bedroom. Okay, Govindas and Owen, and uh, and that's a whole other story that we won't even get into because it was pretty pretty amazing. So uh, I'm going to give the reins over here to Mirabai because this is this is really Mirabai. This is your first podcast, so welcome everybody. <laughs> Hi everyone. Um, thanks for tuning in. And uh, I'm really happy to be part of this new, um, well, the MindPod Network's not so new, but my my uh, podcast will be. Um, I'm planning to talk with um, people, with teachers and practitioners um, about how they get started on the path, whatever path they're on. Uh, I think that might be interesting for uh, mm -hmm. uh for people listening. So I think it'd be interesting actually to hear myself. Cause you know, once you, years go on you, sure. and you don't know people's stories of origin. So, but for all of you out there, Raghu suggested that I ask you, I'm looking for a name, a name for a series that is talking to people about how they get started and all of this. So if you have one, um, I don't know do you, do you, uh, is there a way to uh, email or mm. or something? You just go into the comment session. That uh, when we put this podcast up, there'll be a comment session. So everybody out there, we should have a contest or something to come up with Mirabai's uh, podcast name. That would be fun. But at least at this time, if you have any ideas, <laughs> please suggest it in the comment section on Ramdas Here and Now on MindPod Network. Great, thanks. And today's going to be a little different because uh, because. Um, we're on Ram Das's network. Thank you. And um, and because Danny has just brought out this book, or I guess coming out in July. No, coming oh, out next, June 23rd. June 23rd. Oh, yes. Can you see it? Right there. Can you see it? Well, yes, perfect. Hold okay. it up a little That's higher. Yeah, folks, we're, we're videotaping this too, so you'll be able yeah. to see this on YouTube. Okay. But Force for so Good. So if, if you are listening to the podcast, just imagine it. 
It's called A Force for Good, The Dalai Lama's Vision for Our World um, by Daniel Goleman, the author of Emotional Intelligence with an Introduction by the Dalai Lama. And um, so we wanted to have this conversation today about, because mm -hmm. the book's coming sure. out, and it's really, uh, did I say this? It's for the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday, which is next month, right? Uh, July 6th, he turns July 6th, in case you want to celebrate. So um, I, uh, since I'm in on this role of thinking about the beginnings of things, I realized I couldn't remember. How did you first meet His Holiness? Uh, I first met the Dalai Lama in 1984 when Bob Thurman, who was teaching at Amherst College then, mm -hmm. invited him to the college. I just moved to the area. I'd known Bob through a Tibet house, and I was already involved with some Tibetan things. I'd met him. Maybe you were there. Uh, we took a bus from Almora. Aragu, you were in Almora. Yep. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. was the summer that... Uh, we were supposed to be on a retreat with Manindraji. Yep. He said, let's meet in, in Kosani, this remote village. Ramdas went there and about 20 of us. Manindra never showed up. Right. <laughs> and uh, Kosani was on the road to uh, Kenchi. And we went to see Maharaji in Kenchi one day, a few of us in a VW van. And on the way, we stopped in Almora. And there was this guy that Ramdas knew with his beautiful wife. It was Bob and Nena Thurman. And they had this crying little two-year-old baby girl who was Uma Thurman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd known Bob from India days. And when the Dalai Lama came, he introduced me. And the Dalai Lama said at the time he was very interested in science. And he wanted to talk to scientists. I had just begun working as a science journalist at the New York Times. Ah, so I said, I oh, maybe I can help. I started sending him articles, and I started organizing uh, meetings with scientists on different topics, and that became part of the Mind and Life Institute, which I've been involved with for a long time, too, and he's one of the co-founders of that with uh, Francisco Varela and Adam Engel. So I've known him, uh, you know, not like a f friend that's, uh, you know, meet for some beers or something like that, <laughs> but I've... I've he recognizes me, and we've had sweet meetings, and uh, I've organized a lot and moderated many meetings for him over the years. So uh, for his 80th birthday, the people closest to him wanted a book uh, about who he is and what his vision is for the future. And they wanted someone else to write it. One reason being he's so humble, he would never say how utterly cool he is. <laughs> and he'd never talk about the which great is why he's, he's so done, cool which is why he's so cool uh, and they asked me if I would do it of course I was honored to do it so what was the process like because I know you, mm. you kind of did it with him I mean it's right. under your name but sure. I know it was a process well I said uh, of course I can't write this book without interviewing him and they said sure however he's very hard to book so they suggested well maybe you could come to uh, talk to him for two hours in your deli Okay. In August, yeah, which is like going into I'm an oven. I'm yeah, August. Oh my a, God! <laughs> a sauna, a dust-filled sauna. So I said, "Of course, I'll do it." <laughs> and they they changed their minds, and it ended up being in Italy in uh, so July, bad. which was better. And we spent several hours, and really in three places, uh, in depth. He outlined the most beautiful vision going forward. It starts with working on ourselves, getting our inner 
turmoil and inner life under control, destructive emotions mm. lower and so on, embracing an ethic of compassion and then acting. I find it really telling that he says, work on yourself first and then act or work on yourself as you act. And then he outlined the areas that he felt he needed to tackle. One is this surprised me. You think of, you know, well, compassion, that's being so nice, isn't it? Actually, it's very tough minded the way he looks at it. He said, yeah. first thing he talked about was uh, bringing transparency and accountability to corruption and collusion in the public sphere. He says, there's dirty business, dirty politics, wow. dirty religion, dirty science. We got to clean it up. Wow. And I said, whoa, that's great. <laughs> and then he went on to say, and then another thing that's a moral crime is the winding gap between rich and poor. Uh, the capitalist system needs to be rethought so that income is more equitably uh, distributed. And he really praised businesses that do good, not just well. Yeah. like what are called B corporations that have in their charter, uh, you know, an environmental or social end as well as money-making. And then he, you know, of course, tackled the environment, healed the earth. But he says with all of these things, uh, you know, he advocates dialogue, not war. Two things that really impressed me. He said, analyze, understand the complexity of the issue and then act. And he said, also That's take great. a very long view. If you listen to the daily news, you think things are impossible. You have to, you know, you're pessimistic. It's every, you know, headline act of cruelty, disaster, and so on. He says, that's a distortion. Actually, every day there are more, many more acts of kindness, civility, and so on than the headlines that make the news. It just, you have to remember that and also look through history because things have been getting better over centuries. And they will continue to get better. But he says, with these big issues, everyone can do something. We all have a piece mm. of it. We all have some point of leverage. But it's important that we act, that we act now. And even if we won't see the fruit of our actions in our lifetime, it's crucial that we create this force for good. There's a, a website I, I hope you'll put up uh, on the Ramdas site. It's for uh, people to inspire people uh, to join a force for good. It's called join a force for good. Number four, not word four, join a force for good.org. And one of the things it does is invite people not just to do something to, to help the world, whether it's a small thing, you know, being uh, giving some food to that, cooking some meals for that old lady down the street, that elderly woman who can't take care of herself or doing something for Oxfam, whatever it may be, save her. But let people know about it. Share what you're doing. And there's a place to do that. To let people know they're not alone. Because we do these acts in isolation. It's hard to, to make visible this force. Uh, Danny, uh, join a force for good and then the number four dot org? No. no. The four good is a number four. Oh, the four join good a, is a number four. Okay. Join a force for, for good dot org. Okay. Uh, everybody out there, we're going to make this available on uh, MindPod Network and Ramdas.org for all of you. So, uh, and uh, this is—I wish uh, this is something I'm really uh, great to hear from you because this is stuff that we want to absolutely connect with uh, with great. everything that we're doing. That's so, so great. Yeah, um, it's so wonderful. Can I just—I just want to throw something in here. Um, I'm. Can you just talk to us a little bit, uh, you know, outside of, of uh, 
the practicalities of of the book and and the uh, the mm-hmm. line of thought of the book just sure just talk to us about hanging out with his holiness just the person <laughs> to person just you know sure. anecdotes or whatever because well, you know very few people although it is true that in any situation that you are with his holiness um you completely feel one-on-one with him he has that incredible ability of course yes. to do that but tell us a little bit danny well it, it's telling that the tibetan word for the dalai lama is, isn't dalai lama it's kundun which means mm-hmm. presence being in the presence you have this feeling and it you know uh, ragu and mirbai you'll remember being with maharaji was totally being in the presence of a great being and um there's some similarities. No, I've never met anyone quite like Maharaji, but I've mm. always had been on the lookout for people who are in the same general zone. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say Dalai Lama is definitely one of those beings. Mm. Uh, you know, he he's totally selfless. He's really present, more more present than we can be. Is how I experience. And he always he likes to laugh. Mm. He likes to joke around, and he treats everyone the same. I I remember I. I uh, shadowed him for writing the book on one of his trips to America and in British Columbia. He had a meeting with 20 CEOs in Vancouver, closed meeting, you know, and they're very intimate. They had hired a photographer to, uh, you know, you know, capture that session. And he's taking pictures all over. At one point, he's down on the floor by the Dalai Lama with his camera pointed up, mm-hmm. taking pictures. The Dalai Lama stops looks at him, he's very amused, he laughs, he says, why don't you just take a nap while you're down there? <laughs> and then, then at the end of the session, he, the photographer poses everybody for kind of formal picture with the CEOs, and at the, as that's breaking up, the Dalai Lama says to the photographer, hey, come over here, and he hugs him close and takes a picture with him. Uh, uh, you know, that's just what he's like. He loves people, and yeah. he loves everyone equally, mm. despite all of the, he says, we're all the same underneath. If I was like the puffed up, exalted Dalai Lama, I'd be very lonely. Mm. When I'm with anyone, I just feel we're just the same human being. Mm. All the differences are on the surface. Mm. Oh, God. Very beautiful that way. So beautiful. Mm. Mm. I was wondering um, what he, uh, when he came to Smith College uh, seven years ago mm-hmm. or something, and I heard him there talking about education. And um, he basically what he said was in the West, we have this extraordinary uh, education where we have perfected how to teach students uh, critical thinking and our science is so advanced. But um, that but what is not strong here and was not part of our educational system was the cultivation of compassion and that without compassion, all the, all the scientific and, um, and rational discoveries could lead to bad things. Exactly. Um, exactly. And of course, then he gave examples like the atomic bomb. And sure. So, so um, has, I'll combine that. I want to know if his thinking's been changing, because I know that mm-hmm. you were also involved with him, uh, I mean, I know that you were an early reader on Ethics for a New Millennium, which he did quite a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you're seeing his thinking change over time as he's been more involved in our yes. culture. What's very interesting to me is that he has more and more put an emphasis on young people and education. Mm. Whatever he talks about, the environment, 
uh, corruption and collusion, helping those in need, help them. So it doesn't matter, he says, and we need to educate children for this. And what he means by that, he calls it educate the heart. He's talking about an education for an ethic of compassion. He also includes managing our inner life as part of that, what I'd call emotional intelligence. Yeah. But he says, you know, that's not enough. You really need the compassion component. And he points to new research um, that shows that infants actually have a tendency, very strong tendency for compassion and kindness. They naturally favor that. And they like to give things and they like seeing people and animals who are kind and compassionate. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, something happens around school age and the data shows this around age five, kids become more self-focused, more selfish, so to speak. And then school is a competitive system. You know, what kid is the best? Who got the highest grade? Who knows the answer? Think about it. You know, it's 12 years of training in a competitive me first yeah. environment. And they're now starting uh, like a kindness curriculum programs. There's a big movement called social emotional learning yeah. that I've been involved with for a long time, which is now adding an emphasis on kindness and cultivating concern for others, empathy and compassion. Richard yeah. Davidson, who's one of the leaders mm-hmm. in this area at University of Wisconsin, for example, uh, developed a kindness curriculum for uh, preschoolers where not only do they emphasize kindness in many ways, if you do something nice and a kid says he did something nice, you get a seed in the kindness garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? that's well, that's great. big if you're Is it a real four. seed? Well, it's a, it's a sticker in the kindness. Uh, it's a poster. That's so great. Anyway, it's things like that. Yeah, the kids yeah. love it. And it turns out those kids don't get selfish at age five. Really? So, you know, it's, what it shows is that if we ch- if we morphed our education system in a way, we could do, help kids cultivate this compassion over the years rather than have it smothered. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Um, it was interesting here you talking about how he um, was talking about the capitalist economic system because we've all probably noticed that uh-huh. the Pope this week yes. brought out a, a, a major statement. With very, it sounds very similar to what That's you right. are saying that the Dalai Lama is saying. Do you have any thoughts about that? That's well, kind of amazing. you know, what came up was that he really admires this Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. And he started, he actually sent him some letters, uh, you know, of appreciation from the beginning. When the Pope started to say the church should be a church of the poor for the poor, and he refused to move into the giant papal palace. Yeah, and he yeah. lives in a humble apartment. He has a small car and, you know, yeah. things like that. Well, the Dalai Lama is a simple monk. He lives in a bare exactly. room. Yeah. He has his robes. You know, he doesn't collect stuff. He did once say that he had shopped in Vienna. We, Tara and I, my wife and I saw him in Montreal just after. And he said, I bought something there. I went shopping. He said, what would you buy? He said, I bought a toy for my cat. <laughs> he, has a, he has a cat. No. He bought a little thing on a wire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Play with the cat. But he never buys anything from Santa. Yeah. And when people give him money, which is all the time, he gives it away immediately. I know. I've seen him do you that. You know, and at public events, if there's any money left over, they announce how much, and he says where it's going to go. It's always to a charity. So he's just like that. He's, you know, selfless like the Pope. And, he, and what the Pope is saying is actually uh, pretty identical to what's in the book. The Dalai Lama has been saying these things for decades. He just doesn't have that spotlight. 
mm. of fame. But we need these kind of leaders because if you think about it, what we have are like CEOs who really care about quarterly earnings. Yep. We have po politicians who really care about the polls and what the election results are. They're not facing the big global issues. They're not thinking about human suffering writ large. They're thinking of, in a way about me first, like those five-year-olds, mm -hmm. but it, on, a, on a bigger yeah, scale. Yeah. And that's not the kind of leadership we need if the world is going to survive and flourish going into the future. The Pope and the Dalai Lama really embody that. Yeah. Mm. It's great. Uh, yeah. it's, it's great. It's great. We have yeah. them. Lucky. It is great. Yeah. We have them at, both at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that reminded me that I know that all the royalties from the book are going to Forces for Good. That's right. Yeah, all, all royalties are being donated. Yeah. yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, and yours as well. That's right. And I was wondering if you had, if you already thought of, where are you going to send Well, it? I'm waiting to see what Maybe the expenses are. Right. What happened was I gave the Dalai Lama half of the royalties. Because uh -huh. it's yeah, my yeah. book, my contract. Yeah, so yeah. I said, well, you take half. He said, fine, I'll give it to here, here, and here. Mine yeah. and life, the Dalai Lama Charitable Trust. And, you know, yeah. right away he gave it away. And then I thought, well, I'm going to give mine away too. But then I realized, hey, he just gave away half the royalties. I've got to pay for all the travel and all the trip. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what I, the first thing I've given to is Nepal earthquake. Mm, right. I'll see what's left over yeah, and yeah. give that away. Yeah, well, that's yeah. perfect. Sure. Obviously. Yeah. Mm. Um, I was wondering, has he been talking about, um, he's turning 80. Uh, and I was wondering if uh, he's after 80, what? You know, he, he says he's very healthy and he seems really vibrant. I talked to the people who travel with him, you know, his security and the people that arrange stuff. They say they're exhausted keeping up with him. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, he goes to bed every night at 7 p.m. Mm. He does wake up at 3 or 3.30. Wherever he is, he does four hours of practice before he starts his day. Uh, and he does an hour at night. So I think, uh, you know, he's, he really keeps replenishing himself on the road. And he, knock wood, he says he's going to live into his 90s. Well, that seems likely. And I hope yeah. he does. I definitely yeah. hope he does. Yes. Yeah. Maybe live a long, long time. Um, just uh, as a sidebar to this, because uh, I know some of the Tibetans talk about this, and, and just because he's been here, 17th Karmapa, and I, I'm pretty sure, you, we haven't talked about this, but I'm pretty sure you've had some contact with him. I just, the 17th Karmapa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, some of the Tibetans are saying he would be the likely, not successor, of course, uh, Dalai Lama, but maybe successor as a the kind of representative that His Holiness has been for all people. Uh, and uh, I have seen him myself a couple of times. I actually spent some time with him in, in his hotel room with a few people a few years ago and just saw him recently in, doing, in teachings in New Jersey. And he is pretty amazing young man. Um, and I, I've told this story before, but I met the 16th uh, in the early 80s before he passed, and, um, and I remember getting... Uh, you know, he was he was going to give allow everybody to come and do the kata and have darshan be in the presence of one by one as you came up uh, on stage. And as I got, I don't know, five, six feet from him, I got this wave of energy and I went, oh, my God, this is Maharaji. It was the same 
whatever. Same energy. Same energy, yeah. And then I found that in the 17th, uh, just in an encounter in his room, whatever that is that passes from one to the, whatever it is, the truth, the reality was certainly in there. What, what, what do you, what, what is your impression of him? And, and my impression is that he has that kind of moral gravitas and charisma that you find in the Dalai Lama that makes him a kind of natural uh, leader, a moral leader for the world. And I think that's the role that they, they're referring to. That yes. it's, the, it's the Dalai Lama as world figure, you know, who will step in. The Dalai Lama also, as you may probably know, has said, I'm not going to reincarnate. This is the last Dalai Lama. He did say that after the Chinese government said that they were going to pick the next Dalai yeah, Lama, right, right. <laughs> which would obviously be the wrong Dalai Lama. Yeah. Uh, so, he, so he said, well, this game is over. And that makes it even more interesting about the 17th Karmapa's role. Right. And uh, I think he has uh, amazing potential. He's pretty. He's already stepping into that. He's also very concerned about um, women's issues, women's rights, uh, about poverty, yeah. uh, about the environment. He has a very sophisticated understanding of the environment. Mm. Uh, I think uh, he's going to be terrific that way. Yeah, yeah, that's my impression too. And and really, uh, the, uh, the younger generation and, and millennials, and you know, that's a loose term for just the younger next generation. I think he's absolutely so in stride with where they are and what they can hear. Uh, that impresses me more than anything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, those are my specific questions. Is there <laughs> something else in the book that you want to make sure, or that you think this audience would be? interested curious about i think we covered pretty much everything and i really encourage people to uh, get the book uh a force for good the dalai lama's vision for our world it's a beautiful vision um okay well i'm gonna jump in here because i know that this audience uh our peeps out there uh really uh is interested in uh just a basic, without any isms, Buddhism, Hinduism, or anything, how can we get balanced day to day? What are the, what are the, what are the suggestions that, Danny, you would have? And, and probably start, we haven't said much about emotional intelligence, uh, an amazing book that has, uh, that has been so widely read uh, across the world. Um, I, why don't we start there, actually, because I know you've talked about this a lot over many years, but this is, uh, I think there are many people who, who would love to hear what the essence is that, that you were putting across with that book in particular. Well, uh, the model of emotional intelligence that uh, I find most useful has um, first self-awareness and self-management. You could say mindfulness, you could say meditation. Uh, those are very powerful tools for self-awareness and, and self-management. That means emotional self-management, just keeping your upsetting, distressing emotions under control, uh, You know, using them as sources of wisdom if they have something to tell you, but not obsessing about them. That's when they get paralyzing. And also marshalling your positive emotions, your positive motivation, your optimism, your love for people, your compassion. And then secondly... Uh, empathy, being aware of other people, tuning into other people, having rapport, uh, positive relationships and interactions, leaving other people feeling better after an interaction, no matter what it might be. 
and putting that all together for nourishing relationships. That's really what I mean by emotional intelligence. And it has different levels. You know, it, it's uh, come into schools under what's called social emotional learning, as we're talking about. Uh, it turns out to be surprisingly popular, at least to me, in the workplace and in the mm-hmm. leadership world, because it turns out that the bosses you love working for, who actually get the most, uh, you know, the best work out of, out of a team, are the bosses who are mostly intelligent. Think about the worst boss you ever knew, you know, some, some uh, what, can you say bad words here? On, oh, go on ahead. Oh, yeah, you can yeah. go for it. I'll just yeah. say some son of a bitch. Oh, that's <laughs> that not bad enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know what I mean. Anyway, that person is not emotionally intelligent. If you think about what made them so bad, I've done this around the world with all kinds of groups. Tell me about the best boss you ever had and the worst boss you ever knew. And it's always like the best bosses just describes emotional intelligence and the worst boss is the opposite of that. And, uh, you know, that it surprised me, but it's very powerful there. There's also a spiritual dimension to those four domains. One, you know, self-awareness well, self-reflection and delving into deeply into the, your core being is the essence of spiritual practice. And then putting that into effect in managing yourself, your own life, self-discipline, right living, out, whatever the term may be. And then empathy, which is the basis for compassion. And then uh, operating with skillful means in the world because of all that. Those are all a spiritual level of the same thing. Mm. And so let's talk to, let's suggest to people out there who are saying, well, okay, I'm just starting to get some idea that I am not my thoughts. What's the next steps that I can take to get more self-aware? What, what are some practical uh, skills that I can learn to do that? Well, if you already understand that you're not my thoughts, and you, already, and you throw in that I'm also not my feelings, I'm not my social identity, uh, I'm not my I or my me or my mind, I think you made a lot of progress already. (laughs) (laughs) However, if you want to continue to remember that, that's the trick, is to remember it when you're, you know, acting or when you're going through life. And that's where uh, practice helps. That's where meditation helps. I mean, I I, I should mention, by the way, the Dalai Lama in A Force for Good, uh, it's not a Buddhist book. It's a Mm. science-based book. And, uh, you know, I was with Maharaji, and I've done a lot of Buddhist meditation, other kinds of meditation. But I actually have a science base, and I think of these things from a scientific point of view. And we know uh, from cognitive science that in any domain of skill, if you want to get better, you have to practice. Well, it turns out that in every spiritual tradition, they say practice is the key. And it... I think in a way it doesn't matter what you practice, you know, what brand, but that you keep at it. Mm. And you could be doing a mantra meditation, you could be doing bhakti, you could be doing service, uh, you could be doing vipassana or mindfulness. It's great just so you stick to that path and do the practice wholeheartedly and regularly. 
Because actually now we're finding it creates changes in the brain. There are lasting changes. And that's the sign that you're going to be able to bring it into life. Because you're set, you know, your sitting session, if you do a sitting session of meditation, it doesn't matter what you experience during that session. The fact is that you keep doing the practice that's the core of it, like bringing your mind back to the mantra or remembering to be mindful of your thoughts and not sucked into them, whatever it may be. And if you practice that regularly, then later in the day, when you're starting to lose it, you won't lose it as much or you'll recover more as quickly. It won't be as deep. And that's a sign that practice is really working for you. Mm. What are they, uh, in terms of the experiments that they've been doing with practitioners and uh, meditators, what actually have they been finding, these guys? Oh, in the science. Yeah, sure. in the science okay. around meditation. As it happens, funny you should ask, I just started this week <laughs> to write a book about this with Richie Davidson. A new book. <laughs> Another book. Oh my! Another book. Yeah, that's all I know. I'm like a one-trick pony. (laughs) Books. That's what I do. So uh, you know, we're just reviewing some of the main findings, and 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 they're really encouraging. It turns out that a lot of the main effects and benefits of meditation show up right at the very start, in the very first weeks of meditation, and they get stronger and stronger uh, the longer you continue and the more practice you do. So retreats are great because you get a concentrated session in there. Uh, Also finding that the brain changes as you continue in the practice. It's called neuroplasticity. It's a new understanding in science that uh, repeating the same thing over and over changes the brain. And if you do it continually or, or regularly, those changes get thicker and thicker in terms of cortical connections, and they last. And we do it actually all the time for better or for worse. If you're a fan of you know, junk television, then your circuitry for junk television is getting thicker and thicker. Mm. If you uh, like to think of God or mm. do mantra or your bhakta, your circuitry for devotion is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So it's for better or for worse. We may as well choose for better. Mm. Wow, that is uh, uh, just, I was on a podcast yesterday of a young man who just started doing podcasts. He's kind of new to, you know, just getting into consciousness and, and practice and so on. And I was giving him the practice, practice, practice. That's the basis from which you can have a chance for a little bit of balance and getting, you know, the monkey mind calmed down a little bit. But but this this is uh, this is where it's beautiful, where where people who can really hear through because, you know, they're oriented to rational or scientific mind or whatever it, you, you may have is that that over and over and over is the reason to sit there every day, not to get high That's not right. to worry That's if your if your mind is all over the place. But but the, just that consistency, which you've mentioned before, and I, I also you know believe uh, very much in that too. I, I did a, a podcast with uh, Krishnadas, another our very very close friends from our Indian low hanging fruit family, uh, and uh, it was with this comedian named Duncan Trussell who really turned us all on. I call him our guru. He's our podcast guru from Los he's Angeles. Great. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. And so we were doing this podcast and, you know, he's all deferential in the beginning with Ram Dass and Krishna Das, you know, he's really cute. 
And at one, and it's talking about consciousness. At one point, Krishna says, "Look, I've been doing this for decades, and I got to tell you, I'm still fucked up." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Duncan went. Oh my God, that's the greatest thing. Thank you so much for saying that. I feel okay now. And Krishna said, well, the reality is that what happens over this span of time is you just are not sucked in to every whim and uh, of, of your mind or your emotions. And, and that practice allows you to have some spaciousness between. That's, that's you know. beautiful. There's another way to put it. Paul Ekman, the psychologist who's very close to the Dalai Lama, actually says, the definition of maturity is widening the gap between impulse and action. It's not that the impulse goes away. This is what Krishnadas is saying. Yeah. But you have time to think it over. Mm, right. That's a great thing. What Paul Ekman, you say? Yeah, Paul Ekman. Okay, we're going to use but, that quote. But you know this, um, the matter of, practicing the same thing over and over again is very difficult for some people to grasp. I think, I guess the mind itself craves novelty, right? And, or is it well, here's, more a cultural... Here's set? the basic move in neuroplasticity of in meditation. Mm -hmm. This is a research done at Emory. No matter what the specifics of the meditation, here's the general paradigm. You're bringing your, you're focusing your mind on one thing that you choose mantra, mindfulness, breath, whatever it is, the mind wanders. That's the novelty yeah. seeking. The mind wanders off. The question is, do you notice that it wandered off? When do you notice and what do you do? Yeah. So the basic rep, like in a gym, if you're building a muscle, you, you know, every time you lift the weight, it strengthens that muscle just a little bit more. Every time you bring your mind back to that chosen thing, it strengthens the circuitry for that meditation and, and yeah. keep it there. Yeah. And it turns out that people who have been practicing for more years have stronger circuitry. So it seems that that's what's being yeah. built up. Yeah. No, that's great. Because in the, in my experience at Google, what I, which was probably one of the most successful coming together of everything that Danny's talking about, emotional intelligence, mm. contemplative practices, and mm. science. Mm. But um, when we taught the very first course, which Danny also helped develop, um, uh, I was teaching it with Norman Fisher, who used to be the abbot at the San Francisco Zen Center. He's a great teacher. And so we had taught a full day of of um, basically Vipassana mindfulness, sitting, walking, and uh, uh, mindful listening to each other. And then we said, then we had like six two-hour sessions a week apart coming up. So the first one's a week later and said, well, what should we do? Well, um, let's, I think we should just really get them to practice some more. Let's practice with them so that they mm -hmm. can, you know, help them have questions. And So, okay. So, um Norman starts and says, all right, you know, just bring your awareness to your breath, closing your eyes. And he no more, like maybe two breaths go by and a hand shoots up. <laughs> okay. What? He says, yes, what is it? He said, we learned that last week. This is us. Yeah, what's do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> This is us. This is a, this is the West. Uh, you know, this is unbelievable. 
Wow. So great. Um, we uh, just a, another thought occurred to me. Nothing. To, this is a, away from what we're talking about right now. But it occurred to me because Mirabai and I were talking just before we, before you came, Danny. Um, about this new book that's coming out through uh, Love Server Member right. Foundation and HarperCollins uh, called Love Everyone, which is all of our uh, stories of uh, meeting uh, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba. And, uh, and yeah, we, so we were just chatting about it. And I'm, I'm just starting, you know, thinking, uh, here's a question to ask us, us is what what would you say, and we'll start with you, Danny. What what did you bring back? What what's something that you brought back from that mm-hmm. experience with that being that has permeated your life? Well, you have to remember that when I went to India, I'd already started my graduate training in clinical psychology at Harvard, mm. and I was very immersed in the world of psychology. And then I went to India and met. Neem Kroli Baba and Ananda Mai Ma and other great beings like that who were off the map of psychology. And I realized that I had a mission. And the mission was to explain to the West that there is a larger range of human potential. And also that is a kind of mission for my life is to mm. move in that direction, uh, which is basically through practice, which I don't think I do nearly enough of, but, you know. <laughs> Like KD, you know, it's still there. It's there. It's not as strong, but still there. And um, I, for years, in various ways, I've been bringing that message to psychology. When I first came back, I wrote um, about this transformation of being in some what were then very obscure psychology journals. They're still obscure. And uh, <laughs> but one person who happened to read them was a guy named Richie Davidson. And that was one reason he decided to come to Harvard for his graduate studies. And Richie and I both wanted to do research on meditation for our our dissertations. Mirabai, I think you were around in Cambridge in those days. And um, our professors thought we were nuts, basically. For one thing, Ram Dass as as Richard Alpert and uh, Tim Leary had both been in the very department I was still in like five years before (laughs) and, you know, were tossed out. And there was this whole sense that, you know, you should just stick to the mainstream. Rich and I were desperate to change the course of that stream. Uh, I left psychology and became a journalist. Richie stayed in and he went underground with this interest for a couple of decades, but now he's come back in full force. And there's a new field, contemplative science as a result of a lot of what he's doing, Mind and Life Institute. And I, you know, I'm, I'm helping in whatever way I can because it's the same mission. Mm. That's at the professional level. And at the personal level, I think it's the same. Mm. Mirabai? Well, the first thing I thought is very similar to what Danny's saying, only I didn't understand it so well in psychological terms. But being with Maharaji... And, and that was confirmed by other teachers we were with also. It just enlarged my sense of what a human could be or what it meant to be human. I just had had such a much smaller idea mm-hmm. of what any of us could be, mm-hmm. and including myself, of course. And it just, it, it made the possibilities of life so much more expansive. 
it was amazing to me. I loved that. Mm-hmm. And then the other the other thing was as Maharaji talked to us about um, how to lead our lives, which he did very simply, as we know. Um, you know, it's been I service and liberate service. I was really focused on service for the really whole first part of of coming back and did a lot of things in that domain. And now I I still do those things, but now I'm really much more focused on the practice of liberating love, Mm. love for everyone. Mm. Uh, And it, in the beginning, it was love everyone. It was like, Oh yeah, we love Maharaji, you know, we loved each other, you know, but I, it's, these years have taught me so much about, uh, being being there in love for whomever uh, I'm with, and it I've gone through many many changes. And every time I think, you know, oh, corporate executives, can I love them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then um, uh, the army. Can I really love the army? <laughs> Yeah, I really do. <laughs> it just keeps going like that. You know, I worked with those gang leaders in Chicago. I love them. <laughs> so um, it's uh, that's what it's been for me it, it, in the last number of years. Beautiful. Mm, lovely. I'll, and I'll say my little two cents as well. When, when uh, I first met Ram Dass, one of the most uh, powerful things for me was... Obviously, his honesty and his love, and but it was the sense of sharing. You know, it's the fact that Maharaji said, "Do not talk about me in the West when you go back," and that's all he could do. He could not control <laughs> himself. Right? It, it was just uncontrollable. He he had to share that. And then when I got to uh, when we all met up with Maharaji in India. And I, I saw, okay, everything that I had felt about Ramdas was obviously, he was just a conduit, and it was Maharaji with that giant sharing of that unconditional love. That's what it was all about. And, uh, and in my case, he one day said to me, what do you do in, in America, Canada? And I was trying to figure out how to say program director of a rock and roll radio station. (laughs) And before I could say anything in English, and he pointed his finger and he said, broadcaster in English, right? Oh, in English? Wait a minute. Didn't he say podcaster? No. (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? I mean, and then and it wasn't just about my experience in radio. It was about I had this impulse that to to be in media and share this stuff all all these years and and look where we are now and look what we're doing now, each of us really on the same exact page and, uh, you know, with that little puppet uh, master, uh, you know, playing with us in that way. So, uh, hey, this has been fantastic. We're, we're at the end of our sponsors. It doesn't allow us more than this time. If we had a sponsor, of course, it would be even better, <laughs> um, which, you know, and, uh, but so great. Uh, and uh, pick up. So, Danny, the book is ready to be ordered uh, on. Book, when is it out? What day? It is uh, no, it's out uh, June twenty third. June twenty third. Okay, so but you can order it any time, 
And there's an audio, if you like to listen to books, uh, the audio is available from More Than Sound. More Than Sound? One word, Dot More Than net. More than sound.net and everybody we're going to put that up there and I know that Danny's son Hanuman who we love so much is <laughs> very much a part of that we have to give him a kudo uh, and um, Mirabai yeah you have a lot more to come and everybody's <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mirabai's going to be okay. interviewing other incredible what did people I do? you did great <laughs> You're oh, wonderful. You're a natural. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you're going to be able to read all of our stories in Love Everyone coming this fall, folks. And, of course, you'll hear a lot more about that as we go along. And uh, go to mindpodnetwork.com, and you get to hear not just, of course, Ramdas is uh, and Krishna Das and Lama Surya Das and Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg. See? It's just a, a Tara Brock. Uh, it's incredible what uh, what's available there. So thank you guys, and uh, we'll see you all next next time around. Uh, and it'll be the Mirabai Bush something, something. hour. Okay, help us out there. <laughs> thank, thank you, you. Raghu. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. Thank you.